Father, we thank you that you are moving and that you are active in our lives. We thank you for the ways that we have seen that and experienced that already this morning. And Father, we thank you for your word that continues to teach us about who you are, about who we are, that is uh, your word to us about how we are called to live in this world. Lord, I pray that we would be good hearers of your word today, and not only hearers, but also doers of it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. We are continuing in our, our series on the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, if you remember last week, we followed uh, Joseph and Mary uh, through their very noisy... Can't find my clicker. That's okay. Um, there's only one click, and I'll just point it to you, okay? It's easy today. So um, we followed Joseph and Mary on their very noisy and their very disruptive journey um, from, from Nazareth um, up to Bethlehem, and then from Bethlehem down to Egypt, and then Egypt back almost to Bethlehem, and then to Nazareth again last week, and we found out that the, the Christmas story was not a silent night and holy night, or it was a holy night, but it was a, not quite a silent night kind of story for Joseph and Mary. And there's been a couple points from our sermon last week. Oh, thank you, Eldon. Where'd you find it? Somewhere? Thank you. All right. So there's been a couple of points from um, your pastor's sermon last week that have really annoyed me throughout this past week. Um, And the first thing that has stuck with me is that the arrival of Jesus as king is disruptive. Uh, If you've never experienced Jesus disrupt your life, then you're probably still on your own throne. Jesus' arrival is disruptive. Jesus doesn't come just to be our friend, although in his kindness he does call us his friend. He doesn't come only to be our savior, but in his great mercy he is our savior. He doesn't come to just be a great teacher, although the world has never seen or experienced a greater teacher. When Jesus arrives, he also comes to be king, to rule, to have his way in our lives. And because he is a kind friend and a merciful savior and a great teacher, we find out that when we submit to him as our king, that's the very best thing for us. But it is disruptive, and I didn't like that part of the sermon last week, as important as it is for us to hear. The second point that has stuck with me from last week is that in the story of Joseph and Mary, we see that it's not God's primary concern to keep us from pain. I just haven't been able to shake God's decision to send an angel to Joseph after all of the turmoil of that conversation that Mary and Joseph must have had. That, Jesus, that if God would have sent an angel you know, just two or three weeks ahead of time, Joseph and Mary could have been spared all of that emotional pain and turmoil, and Joseph thinking, I'm going to have to leave this woman who I was planning to marry, and Mary wondering if she was just going to be alone with this mysterious pregnancy for her whole life. All of that would have been spared. But God, but God chose to send the angel after. 
It seems that God's primary concern is not to keep us from pain. God allows us to go through pain. It's not his primary goal or object to shield us from it. His primary goal, his aim, is to be our king. And it's often through pain or through some other disruption that God will use to humble us and to take us off the throne, to put us in the place where we need to be so that he can be in the place where he needs to be. And there, those are the two points that have stuck with me this week and have continued to bother me. You know, as pastors, uh, sometimes we preach a sermon and maybe kind of like you, you kind of hear the sermon and it just kind of moves on from your life. But those two points have stuck with me. And I think it's because it's things that, as you know, God's been teaching me over the last six months or so of my life. Experiencing Jesus as king is disruptive and it's in those disruptions and the pain that is caused by them that God often uses to humble us, to take us off the throne of our own lives so that he can be in his rightful place on the throne. I want to suggest that in some ways, these are really the first steps of discipleship. We're going to be talking about discipleship throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And these are really the first couple of steps of discipleship for Jesus to, for us to encounter Jesus in some way that disrupts us, that causes us to realize, realize that there's things in our life that aren't right, things that are causing us to act out in ways that are killing us and that are killing our relationships, and then coming to that realization and uh, admitting all of those things, that is hard and it's painful, but it's hard and painful in the very best kind of way because it allows us to be humble and to commit ourselves to following him because the way we've been living just isn't working anymore. And many of you have a story like that that you can tell. We're very, uh, some, at some point in your life where you came to this point and maybe you went to a crusade or a, a, a church service or some other experience where you were just at your wits end and Jesus encountered you in a way that disturbed you enough to respond and to say, no longer can I do this anymore on my own and cause you to come and to follow him. These are some of the first steps of discipleship, but I want to suggest to you that these are steps that we have to return to over and over and over and over again in our life of following Jesus because we always kind of want to sneak back up onto the throne. And we need to allow Jesus' message and his word to us to disturb us and whatever pain that that may cause to humble us so that we will get down off the throne and allow him to be there. And so in this next story, in Matthew chapter 3, in the story of John the Baptist, I want to suggest to you this morning that those two points that I just talked about are communicated in this story as well. So we're going to sit here in uh, these points again for a little while this week. Because John's message was this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In other words, get off the throne because the king is coming to disrupt your life, and you should be ready. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The king is coming to disrupt your life, so be ready. But before we get into John's message of repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, um, I want to talk a little bit about this this guy, John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We have a bit of a, an explanation of his ministry and the kind of guy that he was. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who has spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Who is this guy, John the Baptist? In the Gospel of Luke, we learn some things about him. He is the son of a priest named Zechariah and uh, Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, who is a cousin of Mary. So he's a relative, uh, a cousin of Jesus. Uh, But in the Gospel of Matthew, we don't really get any of that backstory of John the Baptist. All of a sudden, in chapter 3, Matthew just launches in and says there's this wild prophet of a man proclaiming uh, this message out in the desert. And Matthew tells us that this man is a prophet who uh, was told about by Isaiah, and he's also told about another of the prophets, that he would come and he would be a voice that would prepare the way for the Messiah. And Matthew tells us that this was John's primary mission. His primary goal was to prepare the way for the Messiah. All four Gospels tell us about the work of John and this incredible ministry that he had of preparing the way for Jesus to come. Remember, it had been 400 years since God has sent, had sent a prophet into the nation of Israel. The people were hungry and thirsty and ready for God to speak. And so John the Baptist comes storming onto the scene, and people respond to him. They come from all over the place to come and to hear this man in the desert speak words of God to them. And we see later in the Gospels and in the book of Acts that John the Baptist continues his ministry on, um, even uh, kind of parallel to Jesus' ministry. And we find out that his, his message and his ministry spread a long way. Um, there were some who, after John the Baptist died, uh, John was so powerful and so influential that people thought that maybe Jesus was John the Baptist raised back to life. I mean, that's how influential John the Baptist's ministry was. Uh, later in the book of Acts, decades after the resurrection, uh, we hear about a man named Apollos who was from all the way down in Egypt who had heard the message about John the Baptist and had come to, I think it was the church of Ephesus, to speak about the ministry of John the Baptist. And Paulus was corrected. He was a very wise man, knowledgeable of the scriptures, but he was corrected and saying John the Baptist was just the one to prepare the one for the Messiah. But John the Baptist's influence, his ministry, his teaching had reached hundreds of miles away, all the way down into Egypt. All that to say, John the Baptist had a very large following, very influential, many disciples, even during the time of Jesus. But his message was to point people to Jesus. And he said that in this way, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And we know that Jesus himself picks up this same message, right? Right? Uh, Turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. It says, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. And then there's some discussion there, uh, some uh, fulfillment of prophecy in verses 13 through 15. And then it says in verse 17, From that time on, from that time when Jesus had heard that John had been put into prison, Jesus then began to preach, repent, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. So John the Baptist begins to proclaim this message. Jesus picks up this message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And by the way, it's our message as well that we continue to proclaim. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
The word repentance uh, simply means to, to turn around. And the kingdom of heaven refers to the rule or to the reign of God. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is one of the main topics in the whole book of Matthew. And we will talk a lot about the kingdom of heaven uh, throughout this series. But it begins here with repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. John the Baptist and later Jesus would say God's rule is coming and so we must turn around. The kingdom of heaven doesn't come because we turn around. The kingdom of heaven is coming whether we turn around or not. And so we must repent and be ready. And repentance is this call to orient our entire lives around the rule of God, the reign of God. To no longer live as if we were our own king, to no longer live according to our own plans and our own agendas, but to turn and to come under the kingship of Jesus and to allow his plans to guide our whole life. Repentance certainly has to do, and I think this is what we often think of when we think about repentance. Repentance does have to do with acknowledging the particular sins in our life, recognizing them, and turning away from them. But before that, I want to suggest that repentance is, is even more than that. It's, it's a reorientation of our whole life towards his rule and his reign rather than our own. The kingdom of heaven, the rule of God, this is what we pray for every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And we do pray this prayer, and we, we are asking when we pray that prayer that it would begin in our own life. Lord, may your rule be true in my life, in my heart, in my home, in my relationships. May your rule expand more and more here on earth in my life and throughout the earth as it is in heaven. John's message is that God's rule is coming, and so we must be ready. And he did this in order to prepare people for Jesus. And his ministry did that. His ministry prepared people to receive Jesus. And his ministry, if we study and reflect on his message, what he has for us, uh, his ministry is important for us. But there are a couple of things that the ministry of John the Baptist can't do. And John the Baptist admitted this himself. The first thing that his ministry could not do is that it could not deal with our biggest problem, which is sin. And secondly, his ministry could not give us the greatest resource that we have for living as his disciples, which is the Holy Spirit. And both of those things, the forgiveness of sin and dealing with the sin in our life and the resource for living as disciples, both of those will come through the ministry of Jesus and the baptism of Jesus. And so listen to what John says in verse 7. I'll read through verse 12. When John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John says that he baptizes with water. There's this act that we do that's some sort of public declaration of my confession of my sin. But he promises that Jesus will come and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John, in his ministry, talks a lot about outward fruit. Change the way that you are behaving. And that is important. But there is a deeper work that must be done, and it is a work that only Jesus can do. It is the work of being baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's a transformation of the inner person. It's a transformation of our hearts and our minds and our souls. It's always been in my head that John the Baptist came with this really harsh message. He was a really harsh and hard teacher. And Jesus comes along and softens John up a little bit. That's not what John says. John says that the baptism of Jesus, the reality that Jesus immerses us into, is stronger and harsher and more powerful and deeper than any baptism that he could give. Because the baptism of Jesus is a promise of real transformation. He comes and he brings the Holy Spirit to change our inner person, to change our heart, to change our mind. Over time, when we are baptized, immersed into the life of Jesus, you will not only act differently, but you will also think differently, and you will want differently. You will have different kinds of desires. The work that Jesus does goes all the way down, deeper than your outward behaviors, to the very source, to the root of your sin, and he does his work there. And that is often very difficult, almost always very difficult and very painful work that he does. And that's why John describes it as fire. Jesus immerses us into the Holy Spirit and into fire. So let's talk about those two things. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God. That's what the Holy Spirit is. The personal presence of God that we are given. We are given. Jesus doesn't simply demand that we change. He also gives the changer. He doesn't just demand that we change. He gives us the changer, the one who can do the changing. He does not leave us to our own self-will and to our own power. He gives us his own self, his power for us to be transformed. In our discussion about following Jesus over the next year, we need to remember over and over again that our following Jesus is not merely a decision and a force of our own will, but an acceptance and a dependence of the work of God in our lives. And in my preaching about discipleship throughout the Gospel of Matthew, like John the Baptist, I want to tell you that you must change. Your actions and your behaviors must be different. I want to show you that the Gospel of Matthew shows us that we have a way to live that honors God as we follow Jesus. And as John says, I want to remind you that we must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But also, like John, I want to point us over and over again to the one who has the power to do the changing. Discipleship isn't just about us trying harder, although our effort is required. 
Discipleship is also about learning to make ourselves open to God and his changing work in our lives. Let me give you an illustration that hopefully will help, to under, help us understand this. If I have a problem with my, with my physical heart, I go to the doctor and he says, there's a blockage in your heart or there's an artery that's not working, and I need to have open heart surgery to fix that. There is going to be some effort required on my part to make that surgery happen, right? The surgeon is not going to show up at my house and say, Ryan, time for your open heart surgery today. There's some sort of decision that I need to make, some effort that I need to make to put myself into the hands of the surgeon to do the work that only he can do. That's a pretty good metaphor, I think, for the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure it falls apart somewhere, but I think it's a pretty good illustration. Our effort, our intention, our commitment to the work is required. There's a decision to be made. I want to be well. I want to be healed. I want the transformation that you offer to me. And there are things then that we do, practices that we engage in that make ourselves open and available to the work of the surgeon, the Holy Spirit who does that healing and transforming work. Are you with me? Does that make sense? But John says we're also baptized with fire. Now, when we hear the word fire and we're talking about the Bible, what do we usually think about? You can say it. Hell, right? Okay. And that fire of hell, of God's judgment, is real. But I think as believers, we very quickly read fire, and we think that that doesn't have anything to do with us as believers. That's for the non-believers. They're the ones who experience God's fire, right? But very often, I didn't do any kind of study on this, but I think... I think that if we look at the biblical passages about fire, I bet it speaks to believers more than it speaks to non-believers. I, I'm not sure about that, but Jeff, you can be on it or something. One of you Bible guys who like to dive into that kind of stuff. Very often, very often, the biblical passages talk, when it's referring to fire, talk about us, believers, experiencing the fire of God. And in our scripture today, when John the Baptist talks about fire, he's talking about those who Jesus baptizes, those who are believers. He's talking about people who know Jesus and follow him. That who, that, we are the ones who are baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John then gives this this illustration of the work that God is doing, separating the wheat from the chaff and then burning up the chaff. And uh, I did a little bit of research this week on this process. If you uh, cut down wheat, uh, they would bring it into this, this barn and then they would thrash the wheat. They would just like slam it with these sticks and with these all kinds of stuff in order to loosen up the kernel from, from the chaff, from both the stalk and the chaff. And then the way they would do it is they would take this fork, this winnowing fork, and they would pick it all up and they would toss it into the air. And it worked best if it was a really windy day. They would toss it up into the air so that all of the chaff and the stalk and everything else would blow away and the heavier kernels would fall down to the bottom. And that's how they would, would, would separate the wheat from the chaff. That was the, the picture that we get here that 
uh, John is, is painting for us here, one that we probably have never seen or, or done, at least not by hand. Maybe we've seen machines do it, but uh, that's the way they did it. And again, I think we read verse 12 that, that God is going to separate the wheat from the chaff and that the chaff is going to burn up with unqu- unquenchable fire. And we think, oh, the wheat is, you know, those who are believers and the chaff are the non-believers. And that's what happens. That's not what this illustration is all about that John gives to us. It's the opposite, in fact, of what it means. John is clear that it is the people who are baptized by Jesus who are the ones that experience the fire of Jesus that burn up our chaff. The chaff isn't referring to other people. The chaff is that part of us that is useless to him. It's those parts of us that serve no purpose. That is what God is going to burn away from us. Isn't that good news? That the fire in this context is not the fire of God's eternal judgment in hell, although we do read about that in other places. Please don't send me an email saying Ryan didn't say hell was real. I didn't say that today. The fire that John promises that Jesus will bring is a fire that comes to us. A fire that followers of Jesus experience. It's a fire that is purifying and refining us and getting rid of that chaff, that, those parts of us that are useless that are unfruitful. John is saying that when we become followers of Jesus, we are then subjecting ourselves to the white, hot, healing and purifying fire of Jesus. And it's that fire that is sure to get rid of the chaff that is in our lives, if we will allow him to. We will submit ourselves to him. Jesus comes with fire. Not only the fire of judgment for non-believers, but the healing and refining fire of the Holy Spirit for those of us who do believe. And the point here, friends, is that this refining, this separating of the wheat of our lives, the fruitful part of our lives, and the chaff for our lives, it's almost always a painful, painful experience. It hurts. John's baptism was for repentance. He said we need to turn around and that, our, that we need to repent and that our outward actions need to reflect that repentance. And that is important and necessary. But Jesus comes with a deeper and harder and more painful baptism. It's a baptism of true transformation of our hearts and our souls and our minds. And it is painful, but in the end, it is a much more deeper and much more healing work. Back to the physical heart metaphor. The message of John the Baptist is kind of like the dietician. Listen, your heart is bad. You need to stop eating pizza all the time, and you need to start eating some salad. You need to change your behaviors, or your heart is going to die. The dietician is important. It's a painful message to hear sometimes. That our behavior has to change if we're going to be healthy, but the work of Jesus is the work of the surgeon who goes in and who removes all of the blockages and does that artery repair and makes the blood pump again. This is the work that Jesus is seeking to do in us. It is a deep work. It is a painful work. But it is the work that brings the most healing. The Bible gives us another image about fire that I want to talk about today that I want to close with. Turn to the book of Malachi. It's just going to be a few pages to the left. It's the last book of the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 3, Malachi talks about both John the Baptist 
And he also gives us a different metaphor of the fire that the Messiah promises to bring. Malachi chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Malachi says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Who is that? John the Baptist. If you listen to my sermon, you should say it loudly. John the Baptist. He's the messenger who prepares the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. The Lord comes to his people with fire. But it's not just any fire. It's not like a raging wildfire or an incinerator that just burns up everything in its path. It is a very purposeful and direct fire. It's the fire of a refiner. It burns up, it melts the parts of us that are useless to him. It burns up the parts that are keeping us from being whole and healthy. It's very directed and purposeful. It's a refiner's fire. A refiner is one who takes metals and the refiner thrusts the metal into the hottest part of the fire until the metal begins to burn, which then separates the impurities that are in the metal. And the refiner takes a piece of silver with the tongs and he puts it in the hottest part of the fire and it begins to melt. And the refiner is then able to separate out then the impurities that are there. This is the kind of fire that the Lord brings to his people. A refiner's fire directed at burning away the impurities so that the metal can become even more precious and beautiful. A refiner's fire seeks to preserve what is good and to destroy what is bad. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, God is doing this refining work in our lives because John tells us and Jesus tells us that Jesus comes to baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And it's this kind of fire that God brings to us in Christ. Right now, those of us who have been given the Spirit are already undergoing the work of the refiner's fire. And God can, and He does, and He will use all kinds of means, some of them even painful, to make us holy. To make sure that we step down off of our throne so that He can be on the throne. He loves us too much to allow those impurities to remain there. And right now, he is already sitting with you at his refiner's fire. So I want to ask as we finish, I'm going to take a time of silence to ask a few questions. What is, what is the chaff in your life? If that's uh, the illustration that worked for you today, or what is the impurity in your life? that God is seeking to to separate out from you. 
And then what I want you to do is to consider the things that are going on in your life. Maybe it's a trial. Maybe it's a particular temptation. Maybe it's a sin that you just can't get over. Maybe it's some sort of suffering. Maybe some sort of relationship that is broken. Whatever it is. And I want you to ask the question, in what way, God, do you want to use this particular thing in my life? How do you want to use that to help me to turn toward you? Because a lot of time what we want to do is we encounter this pain, we encounter this resistance, we encounter this disruption, and we want to run away from it. We want to turn our backs from it, whatever it is. But I want you to ask, what is it in this particular moment, this particular trial, this pain, this physical trial, whatever it is in your life, how is it that God wants to use that disruption, that pain, to begin to clear away the chaff? To begin to take out the impurities in your life. How might Jesus be seeking to do that right now in the pain of your life? Would you take a a minute or two to be quiet and to ask that God would reveal that to you right now? God in heaven, we confess to you today that very often when we go through hardship and suffering in this life that we are very tempted to, in those moments, shake our fists with, at you and ask why you aren't doing your job. I ask God that you would give us eyes to see that it's in those very moments where you want to be even more real to us than you ever have been. And it's in those moments of trial and difficulty and disruption where you want to do your deepest work in us. So Lord, I pray that you would help us, give us eyes to see that when we turn around and face these trials with you, that good things can be done in us. We thank you that you promise us that you never leave us or forsake us in those trials, but you are right there with us. Lord, help us to see you as that farmer who is separating the chaff, all of those useless things that get in our way of being fruitful, that you are that farmer who is attending to us in that way, or that refiner who sits by the fire, the hot fire to remove impurities. That's who you are for us in those times of suffering and pain. Give us eyes to see that. Remind us that you are with us. Give us brothers and sisters in Christ to walk with us and remind us of these things. And I ask these things in the name of Jesus and in the very powerful name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.